Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. The new left has consistently been anti-humane since the 1960s, and I think they want so deeply to remake the human person in their image that they're willing to run over acres and acres of bodies to get there. You wouldn't tell someone in 1860s U.S. who's fighting for abolition, oh, don't be a culture warrior. No, you'd say that's great. It's good that we should be fighting against the abomination of slavery. But in the same way, you also wouldn't want them to ignore spiritual reality only for the sake of anything political. One of the things that is perhaps becoming more and more obvious in our contemporary context is an awful lot of people who have perhaps sat in church every Sunday of their lives do not always know what God considers pleasing. So our prayer for Israel is not only that the war that is currently ravaging that region would come to an end, but we pray that their war against the Messiah would be brought to an end so that they can be grafted back into the olive tree that they were broken off of because of their unbelief. Colorado trumpet players love issues, etc. Today's show is all about questions, questions from kids, questions from our listeners. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll kick it off with part 13 of our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Then we'll be responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. I'm happy to be here. Here's the first question. So if we don't need to do anything to deserve heaven, then purgatory must be wrong, right? Yeah, I love this. This always comes up in confirmation. I mean, I don't know how purgatory always comes up, but I know how it comes up because they have Roman Catholic friends. And then so they talk to their friends and then purgatory is a question that gets thrown out in confirmation. So there was some conversation in class about purgatory. And so these, this child's obviously... You know, like we've talked about before, and this is the Katie Faust interview you have, she talks about the stage these kids are in. And this is the stage, I like to call it the what about stage, where they're trying to connect the dots. And so this is a very reasonable question for a kid to ask at this age. But I think it's also one that even adults may be curious about. So here's what I say to the child. I say, right, first, purgatory isn't taught in the Bible. Second, the whole premise of purgatory is where a person goes to finish making satisfaction for his sins through his suffering and the punishment he endures there until he is paid enough to be acknowledged by God as righteous. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that because of Jesus' atoning death on the cross on which he suffered the punishment our sins deserve, we are declared righteous before God. God makes us righteous. We don't have to earn it. In fact, that's not even possible. Salvation cannot be earned. We receive it as an amazing gift from God 
through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, a work that he brings to us personally through the preached word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so that's where my answer ends, but to continue a little bit, because there's a lot to say on this. Number one, like I said to the child, purgatory is not in Scripture. Now, I'm going to speak respectfully about a difference here between our, our church body and the Roman Catholic Church, but this is not a concern for Roman Catholicism. The fact that it's not taught in the Bible is not a concern, because here's what the Roman Catholic Catechism says. I'm just going to quote straight out of the Roman Catholic Catechism. Quote, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. End quote. Okay. I hope people are listening carefully to that quote. That's about as clear as it can get straight out of the Roman Catholic Catechism, okay? So purgatory is not in the Bible. And if you're a Lutheran, you're saying that should be a big problem. If you're Roman Catholic, it's not a big problem because that's not your sole source of certainty or your sole source of confidence in revealed truth. It's flat out there in the Catechism. Okay, but for Lutherans, this is a concern if it's not in Scripture because all of our certainty about revealed truths come from Scripture alone. Now, number two, the additional problem we have with purgatory is it obscures Christ. I'm going to say this as kindly as I can, but it has the audacity to suggest that Jesus didn't suffer enough for our sins. So imagine hearing the word of absolution and then hearing, okay, now you've got to do these things to make up for your sins. And if you don't get them done in this life, then you're going to have to go to a place called purgatory where you're going to suffer for ages and ages until you've made satisfaction for your sins. I find that to be such a horrible burden to put on anybody. Now, if you go to a Lutheran pastor and confess that you stole your neighbor's car, first he's going to speak Christ's words of forgiveness to you. But then he's going to tell you to give the car back. But that is not about making satisfaction for your sins. That's about reconciling with your neighbor. But before God, the deed is done, right? The sin, it's forgiven. Because here's the thing, Jesus's cross was enough. You don't have to live your life fearing purgatory or worse. You can live in joy and peace. You can live in gratitude and thanksgiving. You can live in forgiveness. So when Christ grants forgiveness through the called pastor, there is no, you're forgiven, but there's simply this, you're forgiven, period. Here is another question. The Christian got old-timers, I think they mean Alzheimer's, a week before they died, would they be saved? Yeah, so you're exactly right. I'm taking this to mean Alzheimer's, but you can see how a child would hear old-timers because in their mind, Alzheimer's is something that typically happens, at least from their perspective, to old people. So, but I love that the child, first of all, calls it old-timers, but the further part of the question, I think there's, that's, that's a, there's some great curiosity built in there about 
how does salvation work if we're not able to put all the words in order? And I think that then becomes very real to us at different stages in our life. So I'll first read the answer to the child, and then I'll expand upon it, because I really feel like there's some important teaching that needs to be done here beyond simply kind of smiling at the misuse of the word Alzheimer's as old timers. There's a really significant question in here. So I say first, wonderful question. I assume you mean Alzheimer's. This would be a form of dementia that steadily and progressively affects a person's memory, among other things. Now, let's turn to the amazing promises of Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So pay attention to his final words. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's the very comforting promise of Jesus. He keeps his sheep. So our salvation doesn't depend upon our ability to cling to Jesus, but on his promise to cling to us. It doesn't depend upon our ability to get all of the words in the right order. It depends on Jesus's promise to keep us in his loving hands. So there are many wonderful saints of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who have Alzheimer's, who Jesus is lovingly keeping until the day he brings them to be with him in heaven to await the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all things. So that's where my answer to the child ends. But let me expand upon it, because I have shared this promise many, many times at hospital bedsides and deathbeds, because age and disease, and Alzheimer's. These things, they rob us of so many things. And I have watched it. I've seen this. And I know, listeners, you've walked this road. Many of you have walked with loved ones down this road, so you've seen this too. It can be very discouraging for someone to feel like they can't get all their words in the right order to express their faith the way they used to and the way they want to. And it can be very difficult for family members to watch, for example, the personality of someone that they love change. So this strong promise of Jesus is so comforting. Just rest, dear loved one. Rest in the strong hands of Jesus. Now, here's what I've observed. Those who have confessed the faith for years, here's the remarkable thing. I want to offer this as an encouragement for why a consistent liturgy and a consistent hearing of the word is so important. Because here's what I've observed. Those who have confessed the faith for years, they are still able to participate in the liturgy. When I bring them the sacrament and when I confess the creed with them, right? They may not know what day it is. They may not know who the president is. They may not even know what decade it is, and they may not even know exactly who I am, even though they recognize the importance of the collar I'm wearing. But they know the confession and absolution. They know the Apostles' Creed, and they know the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes they know more of the liturgy, too. They're able to say that along with me. So again, I can't overstate this. That's why it's so important that we have a regular, consistent liturgy because what it does is it etches itself in our soul so deep that even if we get old timers or 
Alzheimer's, right? Even if we have some form of dementia, something that impairs our ability to put our words in the, the order that we want to, that even at that moment, we're able to confess the faith in some remarkable ways. And I'm sure that uh, listeners, you've seen this before, and I'm sure you have stories of your mom or dad, your grandmom or your, your grandfather who had dementia or Alzheimer's in, in the bedside. And a pastor comes to the bedside and suddenly this loved one who couldn't tell you what year it was, there they are confessing the Apostles' Creed. There they are praying the Lord's Prayer. And I just see that to be such a, a beautiful thing. But to go back to that first promise about Jesus, our salvation does not depend upon our ability to cling to Jesus, but upon His promise to cling to us. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part 13 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Up next, why do some scientists not believe in God? In 1521, at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings. Luther responded, Unless I am convinced from the sacred scriptures that I am in error, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Will you stand with us as we proclaim these Reformation truths in the 21st century? You can take your stand by becoming a monthly or annual contributor to Issues Etc., Find out the benefits of becoming an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Click the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses. Help us proclaim the solas of the Reformation. Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ alone. Here we stand, Issues Etc. and you. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind you're listening to Issues Etc. Lord, help us ever to retain the catechism's doctrine plain. What makes a church unique? Perhaps we should ask what makes a church faithful. Calvary Lutheran Church of Elgin, Illinois, continually learns Christ's doctrine, simply explained in the small catechism. This doctrine teaches us Christ crucified, who even today comes and serves his baptized children in word and sacrament to forgive, strengthen, and teach us for daily life. This, Christ's own work among us, makes and keeps Calvary Lutheran Church faithful. Visit us at clce.org. This is Kevin Hildebrand, cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher, and there's excellent music, including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Cantorai, and a hymn festival at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu slash gsi. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Luther recounts how his father confessor, Johann Staupitz, comforted him when the devil was severely vexing him. Why do you trouble yourself with these speculations of yours? Accept the wounds of Christ and contemplate the blood which poured forth from his most holy body for our sins. 
That little account is from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. You'll find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or you can call Concordia Publishing House and order Martin Luther on Mental Health, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Connor, here's the next question. Why do some scientists not believe in God? Oh, isn't that just a great question? I mean, I think there's such honesty in that question from children, and they're trying to sort this out. So the answer that I have for this child is a little bit longer, and then uh, I'm going to expand upon it for a little bit because this is an important one. So I say, this is a wonderful question. Here's what we know. Mankind is in rebellion against God. The Bible makes this explicitly clear. As such, we are very committed to finding ways to exclude God. Materialists and atheists, so people who believe there is no God, are committed to keeping God out of science. Let me quote a couple of atheist scientists to show you. The first is from a scientist from Harvard. This is Richard Lewontin. He just died back in 2021. But here was is a famous quote by him. I'm sure many of us have heard this before. Here's what he says. He says, It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So continuing on with my answer to the child, here's what he's saying. Science doesn't require us to keep God out. We are choosing to keep God out because we are committed to the worldview of materialism. And in our worldview, God isn't allowed. Here's the second quote from a renowned atheist philosopher. This, by the way, is from Thomas Nagel. He writes this, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. That's where the quote ends, and I continue. Here's what he's saying. People are committed to materialism. He uses the words scientism and reductionism, which basically refer to the same thing. So they're committed to materialism because they don't want God to be real. Why? Because they don't want to have to bend their knee to his sovereignty. They don't want to be accountable to him. They want to be in control of their own lives. This is what the Bible says. It's not the lack of evidence in creation for God. It's that sinful man suppresses the evidence so he doesn't have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And you can find that referenced over in Romans chapter 1. Okay, so I'm going to expand upon that now just just a little bit. So here's the thing. 
if we want to dig into the scientific evidence for God, I would highly recommend, for example, Stephen Meyer's books, right? The Signature in the Cell, Darwin's Doubt, The Return of the God Hypothesis. And if you want to get a better understanding of the worldview conflict here of like scientism or materialism and theism or Christianity, you can check out John Lennox's works, especially his book, Can Science Explain Everything? Marvelous books. Lennox is such a winsome, thoughtful writer. But if, if you want to see an atheist struggle with the bankruptcy of Darwinian evolution, especially its inability to account for the human mind, I quoted Thomas Nagel, his book, Mind and Cosmos. I read this book, it's so fascinating and it's tragic. So Nagel spends so much of his book basically laying out the bankruptcy of Darwinian evolution and especially in its inability to account for the human mind, for consciousness. But after all of that, then he flat out admits he's absolutely close to the idea of God. So God isn't allowed. So you say, well, what's his solution then for how we have this mind that's supposed to be immaterial when he's a materialist? Here's his solution. He spends the whole book arguing up to this point. And his basic point is, well, at some point, the universe just woke up. At some point, the matter just became conscious. I mean, that's really his point. Now, this is a, a really smart man, and he actually believes that at some point, the universe just woke up. All the parts, they, they, just, they just somehow magically got in order, and it produced this immaterial consciousness. I find that to be so shocking and so desperate. And it reminds me of something that G.K. Chesterton said, at least it's attributed to him. He says, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes anything. And I think you can see that with Thomas Nagel. So unbelief, this is, this is what's so important. It doesn't spring from the lack of evidence. It's a problem of the will. Science doesn't make people atheists. The heart does. And the sinful heart grabs whatever weapon it can to use in its rebellion against God. But let me also add this. There are some wonderful Christian men and women doing great things with science. So I already mentioned Stephen Meyer and John Lennox, but I also would add people like Randy Galuza and Tim Clary and, and even uh, Jim Tour. These guys are just remarkable. And Douglas X has some great works out there as well. They're doing amazing things in science. Some of them are in the lab. Some of them are teaching about science but they all see science as a tool that reveals the brilliance of God. I've got a little short article on my uh, blog on our church's webpage that spends a little time exploring that. So let me offer this for young people or even for formerly young people. This is really important. Christianity loves science. It's such an incredible tool that God has given to us to learn how he did it. So I just finished this fascinating book, and it's a deep thinking book by Melissa Kane Travis on Johannes Kepler. It's called Thinking God's Thoughts. And I'm not going to go into great detail because it's pretty deep detail. But other simply to say this, Kepler understood what so many of us need to understand. The basic premise is this, creation first existed in God's mind. And in his creating, he brought it into three dimensions. 
And because we are made in God's image, we can discover God's thoughts. Now, people who are listening, think about that for a second. This is marvelous. Science discovers God's thoughts. God's thoughts in three dimensions. And because we're made in God's image, we can understand them. This is what Kepler meant by thinking God's thoughts after him. I mean, I find that to be absolutely exhilarating, and I highly commend Christians to be scientists. But to go back to where we started here, okay, with the child's question, this this just, at the end of the day, comes down to the will of man and what Scripture teaches. If it's closed to God, and that's the way we're born, closed to God, if it's closed to God, it will be blind to God's thoughts. If it's opened by God, which happens through the work of Jesus and his spirit, it will revel in thanking God's thoughts after him. I find that to be so exciting, and I just commend our listeners, those of you who are scientists out there, wonderful. Be excellent scientists. And I am sure you could call in and share where you've had these moments where you've like, I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. I find that to be so exciting, and I just highly commend those who are either in the world of science or thinking about it, be excellent scientists and show us how we can also revel in thinking God's thoughts after him. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Another question after the break about how to answer a test question. Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today. 500 years before mental health professionals started to do this, Luther was telling people, be aware of what you're thinking, be aware of how you're behaving, change them so that you can help yourself with your depression, with your anxiety. Learn more about Martin Luther on mental health at issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. 
Hi, my name is Rahima Kavuga, Director of Synod Relations at Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We serve the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and your investment with LCEF makes a world of difference. Your dollars enable LCMS churches, schools, and workers to access low-cost loans for vital ministries. Join us today at lcef.org and let's empower faith, strengthen ministries, and build a stronger LCMS community together. Pastor Jonathan Cotter is leading us in our series, Kids Have Questions. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. The next question, Pastor Connor, if we have a test question that asks about the science, the way the earth was made, what should we put? All right, so here's what the child's asking. They're asking, what if I'm basically being asked to put down something I know is false? In other words, if I'm supposed to put something like, well, we came from nothing and there was just this big bang and the universe kind of organized itself and life came from non-life. If I have to write that, what am I supposed to do? And this, this is such an important question. It doesn't just apply to kids. Adults who are listening, you're going to have your version of this question. So uh, let me work through it just briefly here. I say, great question. On the one hand, it's important to learn about ideas that differ from ours. This should not frighten us. Learning about other ideas helps us sharpen our minds and our response to them. Being forced to give an answer that we know to be false is different. Being expected, for instance, to endorse Darwinian evolution when we have good biblical and scientific reasons for rejecting it. So here's one idea. You can write, the textbook says this, or in class, you told us this. In other words, what you're doing is saying, this is the answer you want, but it's not the one I believe to be true. Now, having said that, You may choose another route. You may choose to educate yourself so as to become articulate on your understanding and give that as your answer, but you will need to be prepared to have the teacher count it wrong. That carries a great risk and should only be utilized after careful consideration of that cost. There are crosses to carry in Christianity, but the Bible also encourages us to be wise. You must recognize your youth and relative lack of knowledge. Your best approach is to spend your youth learning and sharpening your understanding of the truth so that you are equipped to confess it your whole life long, no matter the cost, because the time for cross-bearing will come. So that ends my answer, and here's what I want to add to that. For all listeners, the time for cross-bearing will come. Maybe for some of us, it already has come. If it comes in junior high, then we must do our best to bear it. And parents, we need to prepare our children for this. They may have to bear a cross at that time. But in this particular situation, we may choose a more circumspect approach, right? Remember, these are 12 and 13-year-old kids. They're just starting to learn about the worldview conflict. They're not really ready to give a robust defense of the biblical and scientific evidences for creation. So they may choose to write, like I said, the textbook says, or in class you said, and I think that's perfectly fine. But again, option two is also possible. But parents, we just need to prepare our kids and ourselves 
to face whatever consequences may come. And adults, the same thing goes for you. There may be a time when we need to be ready to bear the cross, when we need to be ready to speak clearly and unequivocally. And we would do well to prepare for it. And if I could do anything, anything to get people to get engaged, it would be to beef up their confession of Christ. Because speaking bluntly now, there's no sense in making an ignorant, ill-prepared confession. So we need to be ready so that when we're asked to make that confession, we are ready to speak with a winsome, fearless boldness. And if I could get people to do anything, that's what I would have them do, is really to beef up their confession and get these answers ready to go. Because we need to be ready to offer these answers. Yes, it may require bearing a cross. We have to be ready for that. But at least let us bear the cross having given an answer with confidence and being articulate in our answer and not one from a place of ignorance. Do some people believe God created the earth, but there's evolution? Yeah, okay. So they're trying to sort this out like, okay, there are people out there trying to basically a middle ground, like creation and evolution somehow working together. So this is going to take a little bit to sort out because this is a really thoughtful question and I need to do a little bit of nuancing in here. So I say, great question. The first thing we need to do is define terms and just pause for a second. This is so important for all of us listening. I often describe words as filled donuts, okay? I love filled donuts, but if it's jelly, I'm not interested. If it's like icing or cream or pudding or something, okay, game on, I'm bored. But I wanna know what's in that donut before I bite into it. So words are like filled donuts. So you always have to ask, okay, what's in that word? How's it being defined? So define terms, right? Uh, this is like Greg Kokel's famous question, what do you mean by that? So whatever we wanna come at it, figure out what the word means. So I go on and say, what do we mean by evolution? Do we simply mean that organisms change over time? If so, I'm not aware of anyone who rejects this. Look at the species of dogs within the dog kind, for instance. Clearly, the created kinds have the potential to change within their created kinds. So we see that God is programmed in the ability for a created kind to vary within its kind. So if by the word evolution, we mean change within kind, then pretty much most people agree. If by evolution we mean change across kinds so that a dog evolves into a horse, for instance, we see many people, both Christians and non-Christians, objecting. The proposed mechanisms, genetic mutations and natural selection, do not have the power to generate the new specifically ordered genetic information necessary to bring new organ structures and kinds into existence. They can move it around, corrupt it or delete it, but they cannot create the new specifically ordered genetic information needed to turn a dog into a horse. Some Christians, though, do try to find a sort of middle ground. So they propose either that God guided evolution so that he infused the necessary new genetic information necessary into the created kinds to bring about the upward evolution of change across kinds or change into new kinds, or that at various times throughout history, God created new kinds and dropped them into his creation. They generally conclude this because of the fossil layers that they see. But if we take the flood account seriously, we see that these fossil layers have come about due to the flood and the way it buried organisms. 
while we would disagree with Christians trying to fit a change across kinds evolution into their interpretation of scripture, opting instead to see the completion of the created kinds in creation week with the inbuilt potential for change slash variation within kinds, we would still regard them as fellow believers in Jesus. All right, so that's my answer ends, and I need to expand upon this. So basically the child's asking, do some people espouse a sort of progressive uh, creation? And could God have done it that way if he wanted to, right? Infusing information over millions of years? Could he have done a sort of like a progressive punctuated equilibrium sort of thing? Well, of course God could have done it that way if he wanted to. The problem is it's inconsistent both with the biblical witness and with the scientific evidence, right? So you take the Genesis account, for example. God created organisms, what's the text say? According to their kinds. There's no evidence anywhere in the text that God progressively created. So again, we see created kinds in the text. Then when we look at these created kinds, what do we find? Well, we discover this incredible variability hardwired in. But here's the thing, the variability is limited. So take the example of dogs again. Okay, so there's great variability within the dog kind, right? Dalmatian, Dachshund, Doberman, Pinscher, but you are never gonna get a horse, ever. The science is just burying this out. There's a limit to variability. So they've tried this, for example, with fruit flies. They have bred the lights out of these things and they've radiated them like crazy. They've gotten all different varieties of fruit flies, different eye colors, fruit flies with no wings, fruit flies with four wings, although only two of the wings work. They've got different colored fruit flies. They've got fruit flies with different numbers of bristles. But at the end of the day, you know what they still have got? They still have fruit flies. All they've done is demonstrate basically two things. One, if you mess with their DNA, you can mess with the fruit fly. And two, God has built in an astonishing variability to maximize survivability into his creation. And further, and this is exciting, okay, science is showing how much of this variability actually isn't random. So natural selection the old story, right? The natural selection acting on genetic mutation, right? That's Darwin's old story to account for variation and even to account for change across kinds. Okay, what the evidence is showing, I find this so exciting. And the reason why we're finally seeing this evidence because we're finally freeing ourselves from the assumptions of Darwinism. We're freeing ourselves from this death-centric model and we're learning to approach it from a life-maximizing approach. So, we're actually approaching science from the point of design with the assumption that the designer hardwired survivability or adaptability into his organisms. So instead of natural selection acting on random mutations, scientists are starting to espouse something variously called continuous environmental tracking or sometimes called adaptive engineering. And this is super exciting. So here's the thing. I'll make this as simple as possible, but Organisms, they are equipped with sensors, with an if-then logic or algorithm, and with output actuators. So organisms are programmed to sense their environment, to turn on different epigenetic switches, and then to adapt accordingly. So let me give you an example. Think if you have like adaptive crews on your car. 
Adaptive Cruise is a marvelous new feature on cars. So you know how it works. Uh, if you're behind a vehicle, it will sense the speed of that vehicle. So it has to have the sensor to sense the speed of that vehicle. Then it needs to feed that into the if-then logic, the algorithm that says, if you sense a different speed from the speed you're going, you need to adapt to that speed and match it. Well, then you also have to have the output actuator to actually change the speed of the car. So it takes all three of those, the sensors, the if-then logic, and the output actuator for that to work. There's no way you can progressively evolve that. You got to have all three of them at the same time. What we're seeing is that's hardwired into organisms. It's truly astonishing. So this is marvelous evidence for design and for the brilliance of our Lord Jesus. Now, let me give you a couple examples in the biological world so we can see this. So for example, take the classic example of blind cavefish. For a long time, the theory was, well, they lost their sight through some random genetic mutations. Because why? Because scientists were being driven by Darwinian assumptions. But now we're doing more research. What are scientists finding? Especially those who are coming at it from a designer or engineer perspective. What they're seeing is that these fish are actually equipped with a sensor that detects the connectivity of the water. The sensor relays the relevant data to the design logic, and then that communicates this if-then response to the output actuator that tells the fish to shut down the eyes so it can maximize other senses. That's marvelous design. Or take Darwin's finches, for example. This is great. Here's what scientists have discovered. So over near Santa Cruz Island, this is off the coast of California, they were starting to notice that certain species of finches on that island they're starting to come into contact with human food sources, like food in the garbage cans and dumpsters and so forth. In a few generations, these urban finches, they started to display differences in beak depth and width from the rural finches. So the tired old Darwinian story would attribute this to natural selection acting on random mutations. But researchers discovered that the genes weren't significantly different between the urban and rural finches. So there was no genetic mutation. The differences were discovered in their epigenetics. So you can think of epigenetics kind of like uh, switches on the genes that affect how the genes are expressed. But our point for now is this, that these finches were clearly equipped with sensors to detect the change in the food supply, a design logic that receives the information and communicates what to do about it to the output actuators that are able to implement the necessary changes in the genetic expression. That's so exciting. It's amazing. So this is not natural selection. It's internal selection. Nature doesn't select. The organism does based on the pre-programmed design logic with which our loving and wise God has equipped his creation. So God truly is a brilliant engineer. And I just have one more quick thing to add. The fossil record. I made reference to the fossil record earlier in the answer to the child. Tim Clary, he's over at the Institute for Creation Research. He is doing outstanding work on this, laying out, bear with me for a second, these mega sequences in Noah's flood. So he makes an excellent case for the rapid burial of these organisms in Noah's flood. They aren't evidence of God periodically infusing massive new genetic information into organisms to guide their evolution, of God using death to create. They're not evidence of that. They are evidence of mega sequences in Noah's flood 
when sequence after sequence triggered by tsunamis and rapid plate subduction drove the floodwaters higher and the wave sequences higher and higher. So what they're actually evidence of is judgment against man's wickedness and a reminder that the world will again be judged when Christ returns. See, the rocks are indeed crying out. They're crying out, repent and be saved. Now, obviously, a lot more to say on this. I commend the work of Randy Galuza over at the Institute for Creation Research. You can hear him interviewed on, for example, the Babylon Bee has a great interview with him. ICR's The Creation Podcast has a great interview with him on natural selection and on adaptive engineering, or adaptive, uh, uh, continuous adaptive engineering. This is something that I think Christians really need to start researching and talking about, because here's the thing. Darwinism is dead. But science is very, very much alive, and it's continually pointing toward the brilliance of our Creator and the truth of His Word. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. You'll find a link to his blog on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Jonathan, thank you. Thanks, Todd. We will be responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller next. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy or slavery or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Ad Crucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.